All right. Well, welcome. Uh, I'm Pastor Tommy. I'm glad that you're joining us here at Mercy House this morning. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles open yet, I encourage you to do so. Open up to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's going to be a Bible underneath your seat. If you don't own a Bible, there's a bunch of Bibles on a table in the back. Please take one as you leave. You can go get one right now. That's our gift to you this morning. We're going to be continuing on uh, this morning in our sermon series through the book of Matthew. And if you weren't with us last week, we covered the opening verses of Matthew's gospel. And what you see there, um, if you just open up Matthew, is you see 16 verses of Jesus's genealogy. That's 42 generations worth of ancestors, Jesus's ancestors, and where he came from. Now, this is important for a lot of reasons. I'm not going to go over everything that we talked about last week. Uh, if you missed it, I do encourage you. We have a podcast, so you can, you can search it on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify um, and, and check that out. But the main takeaway, the important takeaway is this, is that the list of names that Matthew provides for us, it tells us the, the history of God's people. And this history that we see makes it clear that God is a God of his word. He's a God of his word. He's a God who is faithful to fulfill his promises. So even when the, the promises um, are in a timing that we don't quite understand or through a means that we don't understand, which is a lot of what that genealogy represents, the promise that he made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 for a son whose kingdom would have no end, it's realized in Jesus, the son of David, the promised king who would be the perfect forever king for the people of Israel. And this promised king is Jesus Christ. Now, this perspective of Israel's long and kind of roller coastering history is going to be very crucial to our understanding of the gospel of Matthew as Matthew would intend for us to understand it. Matthew's gospel is a story of Jesus and how Jesus is this long-promised king. He's, he's not a New Testament plan B. This is not a diversion from God's plan, but everything in history culminates in and is marching toward the birth of this one man. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the birth of this man, this son of David. And for some of us, this might be a strange passage to study without snow on the ground outside or some Christmas cheer in the air. But I think it might actually be helpful for a lot of us to get out of the context of Christmas and all that comes with that to kind of maybe do away with some of the preconceived notions we might have as we approach this text, and then to see this moment in history maybe a little bit more clearly or with a fresh perspective this morning. Everyone, everyone has a birth story. So you want to talk about a shared collective experience as human beings? Well, this is our very first one. And you likely don't remember your birth story. I think that would be a little strange if you did. Uh, but you do have a birth story. It did happen. And what we'll see in this passage is that much like our births here on earth, um, there was a lot going on around our birth in the world. And in this case, what's going on around Jesus' birth is not just filler, so Jesus' parents and the circumstances of his birth are not unnecessary background noise, but God is at work and continuing to lay the foundation for this promised king to come and to do and to be what he was destined to do and to be. So before we jump into the text, let's pray one more time. Father, your word, it flashes forth like lightning 
and we pray this morning that it would strike our hearts. God, help us. We need you, and we need a Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Most stories that you read or movies that you watch are going to follow a pretty similar story arc. So if you look on the screen, you're going to see this slide. This is a helpful way to understand how a basic narrative works. There's usually a setting that it begins with. There's some conflict that rises up to a climax. There's a resolution, and then it settles down into a new setting. Almost every story, especially narratives, have this structure to them. It's not different from parts of the, uh, of the Bible that are narratives, where there's a series of events that, that kind of come together in sequence to tell a cohesive story. This is going to be a really helpful tool for us as we study the Gospel of Matthew, because the Gospel of Matthew is a narrative. It tells one big story of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, but it also includes smaller narratives and scenes within that larger arc. And what this tool allow, allows us to do is to see key elements of the story and the way that Matthew is telling the story, to see what Matthew is intending our attention to be drawn to based on how he structures his writing. And this morning's passage is no different. So we see a setting or a context, and that is that Joseph and Mary are, or Mary's betrothed to Joseph, and this means that they're engaged to be married. We're going to talk more about this in a minute, but that's, that's the setting. That, that's the initial context. Then we see some conflict, that Mary is pregnant. Now, normally this wouldn't be a major conflict, but Mary and Joseph aren't husband and wife yet. They haven't consummated that marriage so there's some conflict there, and this conflict builds, and it builds until we get to the climax of that conflict, and Joseph is kind of running out of options, and, and he's about to divorce Mary. I'm going to talk more about that in a minute, until God speaks to Joseph in a dream and tells him this, this is not a problem. It's actually the plan, and so the conflict is resolved. God literally provides the resolution by blessing that situation, and then we're left with a new setting afterwards. We're left with the end of this passage where Joseph and Mary are eventually married, um, and baby Jesus is born into the world. That's the basic narrative structure of these verses in this passage. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to be using that structure to see why Matthew included these narrative details, uh, the details that he did, and then what are we supposed to get from them as highlighted in the way that he told the story. So let's jump in. Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Jewish betrothal is similar to some, uh, in some ways to uh, our engagement process today. Uh, with some pretty big important differences. So it, it was typical uh, that the, the betrothal would, would last uh, uh, for one year leading up to the wedding day, but betrothal was a lot closer to marriage than how we would view engagement today. So you would never call off a betrothal like we might call off an engagement today. And while the, the two people uh, who were in this engagement season didn't uh, live together, they didn't have sex like a married couple would, uh, betrothal was seen as the equivalent to marriage. And that's why in verse 19, you see Joseph referenced as Mary's husband. 
So the only way to end a betrothal was the, only, uh, the, was the same way that you would end a marriage, either through death or through divorce. And so Mary is betrothed to Joseph. They were set to be officially married to one another. And we really don't know any of the details about their engagement. These are some of the first questions that, uh, that we ask during premarital counseling. When I do this with my wife, with, with other young couples, we ask them, you know, how did you guys meet? Why did you guys fall in love with each other? What do you love about one another? When did you like know that you wanted to get married? Like these are some of the questions that we actually don't get any of in this text. What we see or what we get is a simple sentence which sums up probably one of the most shocking things that can come up during an engagement. Look at the second half of verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So step back from the Christmas narrative for a second. Step back from knowing that this is baby Jesus and then it's all going to work out. What's really interesting here is that this account of Jesus' birth, uh, when it's compared to Luke's gospel account, this one is actually from the perspective of Joseph. So when you read Luke 1 and 2, you see it from Mary's perspective, which is incredibly epic um, and awesome in its own right. Matthew's addition, though, uh, or, or, or Matthew's version, what we see is that Joseph is engaged to get married, and then he finds out that his fiance is pregnant. It's, it's kind of simple compared to Mary's perspective. And then Matthew's addition at the end of verse 18, where it says that she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, that's made with hindsight. Joseph didn't know what he's about to know through a very special message from God. And sure, it's it's quite possible that Mary clued Joseph in on what was happening. So after all, Mary had her dream, her vision before she even conceived, and God told her everything that was about to happen. We don't read anywhere in scripture that they had a conversation about it, but I'm honestly not very sure how helpful it would have been for Joseph in that moment. Like if Mary said, hey, I'm pregnant, and it's not your baby, and and Joseph's like, okay, um, whose baby is it? And she's like, don't worry, it's God's baby. <laughs> like, there's going to be alarms going off in Joseph's head. I think rightfully so. It's not unreasonable for him to be a little alarmed. See, what we spend a lot of time in the Christmas season thinking about is the joy of Christ coming into the world, which absolutely, we need to be thinking about that. But we seldom recognize the shock and the stress of what the supernatural circumstances here produced for for at least Jesus' earthly dad, Joseph. If you're engaged, and the person you're engaged to becomes pregnant, and you know that you haven't been married with them yet, that's conflict. That's conflict. And then to add to that, your fiance is telling you, don't worry, the baby's from the Holy Spirit. Like, do you see how there's conflict in this story? I think some of us today, might wonder, what is the big deal? Here we go again, Christians with their chastity, their temperance, we're only making a big deal out of it today because Christians have such a rigid or prude understanding of marriage and sexuality. It's not a big deal today if you're pregnant before you're married, which is true, culturally. Culturally, we wouldn't really flinch at a situation quite like this. But regardless of what you think, about how we would treat the situation today in our modern culture, it was a significant deal in Mary and Joseph's culture. That's the setting, that's the context that we need to read this text from. 
And as I mentioned before, if you're betrothed, then you are seen as married, which meant that the consequences of being pregnant before you are married carried the legal punishment of adultery. It would not be the same if Mary wasn't betrothed. And so this situation only is going to end in shame for Mary and potentially even death for Mary. Knowing, excuse me, knowing this context is going to help us understand the conflict in these verses and Joseph's response. Look at verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just, and, uh, just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph is described here as a just man, meaning that he does what is right. He is a man of integrity, of dignity. He doesn't sidestep moral obligations, and the obligation for Joseph is to divorce Mary. This is not so much of a choice or a decision for him. It's what would have had to happen given these circumstances. Joseph would have been forbidden to marry Mary given these circumstances. But at the same time, he was unwilling to put her to shame. That's what we read right there. He's not only just, but he's compassionate. He not only feels constrained to do what is right, but also he doesn't want to do any harm as well, whether that's social or emotional or even physical harm to Mary. And so his solution in this conflict is to divorce Mary quietly. Now, this would mean that the reason for the divorce would not be made super public to everybody. And this is really significant because there would always be a shameful cloud over both of their heads. Joseph could go public with the details, and he could let everyone know, which would have justified that divorce very publicly. It would have absolved him of any guilt or any shame. But what he does is he takes that on himself so that his betrothed, his bride, would not have to endure that shame alone. <laughs> Joseph did the best with what he had. He, he played the hand that he, he was dealt in the most honorable, um, in the most upright way possible, not being afraid of the ridicule or the criticism that he would receive, not being afraid of the social stigma or um, the black mark that he would be subjecting himself to, and simultaneously, as best as he can, doing what is both right in the eyes of God's law and also good in the eyes of his betrothed. What Joseph did, considering the circumstances, was admirable. It was even arguably an expression of the future gospel message that Jesus would manifest with his own life. So what you see here are themes of doing what is righteous and, and, and taking on the shame of others out of compassion for those other people. Something that his son Jesus would go on to exemplify by taking on the sin and the shame of others on the cross for his bride, us, the church. The main difference is that Jesus doesn't quietly divorce us, but he pays a very hefty price to remain with us. And what we see in Joseph here is a beautiful little potential moment showcasing the phrase, like father, like son. But here, more accurately, it's actually flipped around. It's, uh, it's the father, Joseph, being like his son, Jesus. Jesus is going to go on to do all these things, but God had other plans, and divorce was not on the table. Read on in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, 
Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph is taking a minute to think about what's going on, probably playing out the various scenarios and wondering how in the world and what in the world he's going to do when all of a sudden an angel appears in a dream. So God has done this before. The angel of the Lord is referenced many times throughout the Bible to both speak and act on behalf of God. And what he says to Joseph is, do not fear. Do not fear. The language is a little bit clunky here. It doesn't mean, like, don't be terrified of taking Mary as your wife, but it's more of an encouragement to take heart, to do what is right, to be brave and courageous. And God intervenes into the scene to address the conflict in a very, very precise way. So there's lots of things he could have spoken to. The challenges that they're facing uh, might be social. The challenges that they're facing might be emotional. They might even be practical. But, but God gets to the heart of the matter. The child is from the Holy Spirit. Meaning this unplanned pregnancy of theirs is actually very intentional. It's very purposeful. It is the planned pregnancy from the Lord. So a question for us is how often do we, when we experience things that aren't happening according to our plans, that aren't meeting our expectations, do we pray that God might fix or resolve that problem in our lives? I do this a lot. And this isn't an evil reaction to hard situations in our lives. What we're seeing here is that Joseph's problem wasn't a problem at all. And we can all certainly see how it would make sense that it felt like a problem to him. I think that this is a reminder that there are sometimes circumstances that, meet, that we might want to escape from, where God's plan and his purpose might be that we persevere through them. Challenging situations and hard circumstances aren't just things to avoid. As Christians, God often uses these in our lives to sanctify us, to mature us, to grow us, to bring about his purposes in our lives. Now, this doesn't mean that we just sit in every circumstance and say, this is God's will. Like, if you're cooking and your food catches fire, which actually happened to a couple of our friends last night, I don't think this teaches us to just sit and wait for the whole house to burn down. No, you put out that fire. But there might be situations that the Lord allows us to be in, situations that are complex in nature, that are hard to navigate, where our knee-jerk reaction might be to get out, to look for immediate resolution or escape. But instead, I think what we're called to do is to do what Joseph does, to consider these things. Verse 20, to consider how to navigate the situation in a godly way, honoring the Lord, honoring other people, even if it means maybe taking on extra burden, taking on the pain or the consequences on ourselves. The path of least resistance is not always the right path. Remember the narrow gate that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, the one that is narrow, where the path is hard that leads to life. Some fires need to be put out, but other fires refine us. It might be that the situation that you are trying so desperately to get out of might be the situation that God has you purposefully in. And the way to know the difference is to take the time to consider and to think through the lens of Scripture, being sensitive to the Spirit of God in us, and to hear from Him 
through his words in the Bible, through our brothers and sisters, through, through dreams, perhaps. God does speak. But often in our difficult situations, are we willing to listen? God could have stopped right here by saying, this is a part of the plan, go ahead and take Mary as your wife. I think that would have been enough. I think it would have been enough for Joseph, but he actually goes on. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. Save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The angel of the Lord reveals the purposes and the plans of God in this extraordinary situation to Joseph. The way that God does this is by giving the name for his baby in two different ways. There's two names, one that is given directly and one that is given through his prophetic words. Did you catch those? Look again at verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Verse 22, and all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What's in a name? What's in a name? For God, names are very, very important. You see this all throughout the Bible. People are given names with purpose and with intention. And some people choose names out of a baby book, and it might be based on just how you like, how it sounds, or how you feel about the sound, which is fine. That's okay, an okay way to name your child. It's never the way that God names his children in the Bible. God's way, his method of naming, what you see is this beautiful clash of creative poetry and also very practical utility. So creative poetry and practical utility. Let me show you what I mean. Genesis 17, verse 5, this should be on your screens. This is God renaming Abraham. Verse 5, no longer shall your, your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Do you guys know what Abraham means? Father of a multitude, right? Very practical, very utility, but also poetic in what he's doing through Abraham's life. Later on, he renames his wife. Verse 15, and God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Do you guys know what Sarah means? It means princess. So Abraham as the prince, that's, she's the princess. To him being the prince, it's like a beautiful poetic moment. And he's on a roll. So look at verse 16. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she'll be, she, she shall become uh, nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Verse 19, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Do you know what Isaac means? He laughs. That's his name. He laughs. So God's got a little bit of a sense of humor. He's also very practical, but he's also beautifully poetic. 
Now, Jesus carries on and kind of shares his father's hearts for name, names as well. You see this in, later on in Matthew. Jesus renames Simon. So you, I'm sure you've seen this before. Chapter 16, verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter is Petros. It sounds a lot like Petra, which means rock. So you're seeing what he does there. Maybe a more modern contextualization of see what he's doing there. Renaming Simon to like Rocky, right? Because it's like a rock. You see what he's doing there. Names are important to God. The, the first one we see here, which God is commanding Joseph to call his son, is Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, if you didn't know, it's a contraction of words. Lots of Hebrew names uh, are, are phrases or sentences that have been kind of condensed and jammed together. And so Jesus, the, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which means Yahweh helps, or in our modern English, God saves. So when you see Jesus, you're seeing the phrase, God saves. God saves. And you see God's poetic creativity and practical utility play out right here. It's a play on words. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So in other words, call him God saves because he will save his people. So I, I want to consider for a moment that God could have named his son anything. He could have named his son anything. And to be fair, there are lots of names for Jesus in scripture, but the name that God is commanding Joseph to give to his son is God saves. Why? Look at the second half of 21. For he will save his people from their sins. The gospel message and the purpose of Christ is made blatantly clear on the first page of Matthew's gospel. There are times in the Old Testament where God is a little bit more vague, where his promises are a little bit obscured, where things haven't been fully revealed yet, but not here, not now. This is the moment that every word of God has been pointing to. More specifically, this is the person that every word of God has been pointing to. And for those who have hoped for and longed for this moment, they're about to be vindicated. This has been the cry of humanity since sin first came into the world and broke all of creation. You hear it in Psalm 69, verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink deep in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out, my throat is parched, my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Are you neck deep in water, Mercy House? Are your feet slipping with nothing solid to put your feet on? Do you feel the flood sweeping over you? Are you weary of crying out to God? Are your eyes growing dim waiting for God? Are you needing some rescue? Does your heart cry out with the psalmist and all of creation in verse one here, save me, O God. We'll hear the father introducing his son. She will bear a son and you shall call his name God saves. The identity 
of God as our Savior, the purpose of God to save us is in his name. Like, talk about a spoiler. This is how excited God the Father is to introduce his son to us. He can't help it. He's been waiting so long for this very moment. God's not burying the lead. He, he's giving away the entire ending in the title right there. Mercy House, every time we say the name of Jesus, we preach and we proclaim the gospel. Salvation is literally in the name of Jesus. The question is do we know what we need saving from when we call on the name of Jesus? The people of Israel were looking for a savior. They were, but they were looking for a savior from the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. Their hope and their expectation for Jesus was for him to be a military leader for, for them, someone to defy the power of men, someone to liberate them from their circumstances in life. But that's not what Jesus came to do. God couldn't be more clear right here on page one. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. Jesus' earthly ministry was not to save us from our material circumstances, but to save us from our eternal circumstances. People did not like that. This is why many of God's people, the people of Israel, didn't receive Christ. They rejected him. It's why they didn't believe in him as their God, because they didn't understand what their greatest need was. And so they didn't understand Jesus' purpose. So they couldn't appreciate his presence when he finally came. We need to make sure that we don't make the same mistake we need to make sure that we don't misunderstand our greatest need as humans. Our greatest need is not financial stability. Our greatest need is not a romantic relationship or having a family. Our greatest need is not happiness. Our greatest need is not having a successful career, being well thought of by others. Our greatest, greatest need is not even our physical safety or, or food security. And here's why. What use are material needs of the present when we have no hope for a future? The consequences of sin is eternal death. We have a very dear brother here at Mercy House who's battling stage four cancer. When your prognosis, when, you're, when that is your prognosis, when you're told that you have five years to live, your priorities of what to worry about in life change. This is not to say that God doesn't care about our worldly needs. On the contrary, God, our Heavenly Father, knows what we need. Matthew 6, 32, we preached a whole sermon about that. But he knows that we have a greater need than food or water or clothing. We have a greater need than being rescued from poverty or hunger or even cancer. And all these things lead to earthly death. And that is to be rescued from our sin, which leads to eternal death. That is every single human's greatest need. And that's the need which God sent his son into the world to address. If you're not a Christian, this is what Jesus came to do. It is what his name means. I don't know what you need help with. I don't know what you need saving from. But whatever that is, if it is merely circumstantial, 
if it is merely of this world, no matter, how, no matter what that is, and it might be awful, it might be terrible, but you still have a bigger problem. The good news is in the name of Jesus. Yeshua helps. God saves. Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The name of Jesus is both a request for help. It's God save. It's also the resolution. God saves. So call on his name, my dear friends, and you will be saved. If you are a Christian, you have had your biggest problem resolved in Christ. The, the resolution to your conflict with sin was on the cross. Do not forget that. The name of Jesus is a reminder to us of our cry for help to God and his incredible response to that cry. And now, when we proclaim it by shouting his name out in praise or in worship or in prayer, it will put every other problem, every other challenge, every other ounce of suffering on this earth into eternal perspective. While this is true, it's not incredibly comforting. I'll be honest, knowing that God saved us from our sin does give us perspective, but it doesn't necessarily make what we're going through any easier. But there is another name for Jesus. Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God by becoming flesh and blood, demonstrates that he is not a distant spiritual figure. He is not merely observing his creation from afar, but he is intimately involved. He's with us in our trials. He's with us in our hardships. He's with us in our sufferings. He's with us in the muck and the mire when the water is up to our necks, when sorrows like sea billows roll. He didn't just enter into the world to save us from our sin. He entered into the world to be with us. And he did so at great cost. This is what we remember when we take communion each week. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. In order to be God who saves, in order to be God with us, Jesus had to come in flesh and blood. He had to be born as a human being. He had to submit himself under the law of God. He had to live that law out perfectly, thereby, thereby fulfilling it. And he had to be offered up as a sacrifice on our behalf. This was the only way to save us from our sins. And it, it was the only way for God to be with us. It's the only way for him to be Jesus, to be Savior to be Emmanuel. When we take communion, we remember the cost of God to even be called by his name. In Massachusetts, you have to pay $150 to change your name. Jesus Christ paid with his life 
to be called by his and to be forever with us. Let's pray. God, your name is above all other names. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. At your name, Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, help us to call on your name. Help us to see our greatest need and help us to hear your response, God. Together, God, we pray, Jesus, save us. And together, God, we proclaim, Jesus, you save. God, it's in your incredible name. It's in your astronomically expensive name. It's in your beautiful, powerful, saving name that we pray these things. Amen.